make sure this is on. It is on. All right. Good morning. All right, this topic is a lot harder than the last topic I had. If you remember, I opened up the series talking about husbands and fathers, which as a father of eight, I guess you could say it is a little easier. Um, but now covering and closing up this series with masters and slaves, um, it's going to be something that's very difficult for me. And one of the reasons why is I hate slavery. Just the whole concept of it as a whole, I hate it. And I don't think there's any other way that I could put it. And uh, you're probably going to hear that as we cover certain things. Um, but also understand, obviously, I cannot allow my presuppositions to go into the text. So that's something I also had to guard myself against as I prepared for this. So getting into the message, um, as you remember, over the last several weeks, we've had the opportunity to examine how the gospel transforms and informs our relationships. We so far have considered the roles of fathers, husbands, wives, mothers, and parents, children. As we've considered each of these roles, hopefully we have realized some common themes that have been at the forefront of these relations and were explicitly expounded in Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So as we look at the beginning of chapter 3, we see the first thing we're to do is to set our minds on the things that are above. In verses 1 and 2, we see that. Because we have been raised with Christ and we have died to sin in the flesh, and our lives are hidden with Christ and God, we are to set our minds on the things that are above. So one of the things that we need to keep in mind, especially when we get into relationships, it is temporal. 
But when it comes to our relationship with God, that is eternal. Second, we are to put off the old self and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's verses 5 through 10. We are to put to death what is earthly in us. Why? So that we might be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And one of the things that we talked about as we looked at the relationships, whether it was husband-wife, parents-children, was that each of us is to aid in our flourishing and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Third in Christ, there is no distinction based on social status. So though the world might take into account race or socioeconomic status or gender, in Christ, none of these things matter as we are all one in Christ. And fourth and finally, in whatever role we find ourselves in, we are to put on love and fulfill that role as for the Lord and for the good of the individual in which we have a relationship with. So those are four things that we see in the beginning of this chapter. So just to recap, so husbands, although you are the head, you are not to use your headship to dominate your wife. But instead, you are to love her as Christ loves the church. Wives, you are called to recognize your husband's headship and submit to him as is fitting in the Lord. Fathers or parents, you are called to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and not provoke them to anger. Children, you are called to obey your parents in the Lord. Now, as we take into consideration these four principles, especially principles three and four, none of these principles change when it comes to the relationship of slaves and masters. As we examine these relationships today, we will see, or still see, that in Christ, social status does not matter, and we are still to put on love and fulfill our role as for the Lord and for the good of the other individual. But before we get into what each individual in each role is called to do, I want us to take a deeper look at the institution of slavery, exploring both slavery in New Testament times and slavery in the American context. Now, due to time, this will not be a thorough examination of the institution, but instead just a cursory glance. Plus, I am no expert in either one. Purpose of this covering, though, is twofold. This is currently a major issue on social media. We have many going back and forth, and it needs to be addressed. And two, we have a tendency to romanticize New Testament era slavery and act as if any type of slavery is better at all. And as I told you, I hate slavery. So any type of slavery, I will not condone or support. So there are areas where there are differences, but we also have some similarities as well. Now to get this information, I have to give credit where credit is due. I utilize two books, uh, The New Testament Antiquity, a survey of the New Testament within its cultural context and the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament era, exploring the background of early Christianity. So in the New Testament era, slavery was a widespread practice throughout the Roman world, and the institution was unquestioned. Any free person had the legal right to own slaves. Slaves were viewed as human property, called a living tool, and were bought and sold as any other commodity. They could be rented out to others, which is a convenient way to recoup the cost of purchasing a slave. 
The master had complete dominion over the slaves. An individual became a slave in the following ways. Captured in war or a descendant of someone captured in war. Sold into slavery to pay debts. And an individual could sell themselves into slavery or someone else would sell them into slavery. For example, a parent would sell their children into slavery to pay off a debt. Uh, They could be abandoned as infants. So if the parents did not want the child, especially females, they would leave them out to pretty much be found by strangers who in turn could raise them and then sell them as slaves. Or we would have captured or kidnapped individuals who were then sold into slavery. Slaves had a wide variety of functions, such as cooks, nurses, barbers, farmers, teachers, potters, sculptors, and painters. But here are two positions that will definitely remove some of the romanticized ideas we have of New Testament-era slavery. Some slaves were also used as gladiators and prostitutes. Some slaves held positions of responsibility. Some belonged to the emperor, and with that, they traveled in pomp and luxury. They had their own slaves and commanded deference from other individuals. Some managed farms or a business, and we see that in Matthew 25, 14 through 23, which again, for the sake of time, I will not get into. Slaves that were abused frequently tried to run away, but in some instances, systems were put in place to keep masters from abusing their slaves. Abuse of slaves usually consisted of physical cruelty and not providing enough food. If runaway slaves were captured, they might be flogged, kept in chains, sent to a prison, branded with a hot iron, or crucified. Lastly, slaves of the New Testament era could obtain their freedom in the following ways. First purchase. The individual slave could purchase his or her own freedom by saving up gifts and small allowances that they received. Or family and friends could supply the funds to purchase their freedom. Secondly, a will. So the master could free his slave if he listed that slave in his will. And lastly, marriage. Now this is especially in the case for females. The master would free her to marry her. So that's New Testament era slavery in a nutshell. In the American context, slavery was widely practiced, especially in the South. Slaves were viewed as property and bought and sold just as in New Testament times. Slavery in the American context was race-based. Individuals were kidnapped, taken from their homeland, and shipped to America where they were sold on the auction block. During the pre-colonial and colonial periods, any free person could own a slave, but as we formed as a nation, it was illegal to own slaves in states that were free states. Slaves in America had domestic functions, but were mostly used for agriculture and mining. Slaves in America were not trusted to hold positions of responsibility. This is more than likely due to racial prejudice, more than anything. Slaves ran away to obtain freedom and or because they were abused. This abuse included being overworked, whipped, and tortured. The whippings and torture were done either to terrorize the other slaves into submission or just because. If runaway slaves were captured, they'd have their limbs amputated or face whippings, brandings, other forms of torture, or death. 
There were periods of manumission for American slaves up until around 1831, but due to the invention of the cotton gin, which we all know how important cotton was to the South, in 1793, and several other slave results, manumission became nearly impossible. So that's American slavery. So with that backdrop, what does Paul call slaves and masters to do now that they have put on Christ? Slaves are called to obey in everything those who are their earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 puts it this way. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. The call for the slave is to obey his earthly master in everything with fear and trembling and to work heartily as for the Lord. Now, if I'm honest, this is something that I have a hard time grasping, especially in the light of what I read to you in both New Testament times and in early American times. Coming from the background that I come from and knowing what I know about American slavery, it is difficult for me to reflect and think about what I would have done if I was around during slavery, or if I had an opportunity to speak someone, speak with somebody rather, who was a slave in the antebellum South. Being obedient to someone who is the cause of my never seeing my family or homeland again, or who just sees me as property, would be difficult. Yet although we covered it, the American slavery experience cannot be the lens in which I examine this text. Joseph was taken from his homeland, believed he was never going to see his family again, was lied on by Potiphar's wife, thrown in jail, and although I'm sure Potiphar believed he was innocent, still threw him in jail. Once in jail, was told by Pharaoh's cupbearer that once he was restored to his position, that he would tell Pharaoh about Joseph, but forgot to do so. And yet, despite all these things, Joseph was faithful. Paul knew that everyone who was a slave during the time period in which he wrote did not voluntarily sell themselves into slavery to pay off debt or to better their current situation. Many were captured POWs or kidnapped. Many were born to slave parents or abandoned or sold by their parents. So none of these individuals asked to be slaves. Many were ill-treated and abused to the point where they had enough and ran away. Yet in spite of all these things, Paul encourages them to obey their earthly masters and work heartily as for the Lord. Why? Because in serving their earthly master, they are serving the Lord Christ. This is important for the slave to realize for several reasons. As Curtis Vaughn puts it, this would transform the most menial responsibilities and give dignity to all their work. So whether or not the master recognizes it is not important. You work for the Lord and your dignity and worth is in him, not in your earthly master. Helps the slave to serve faithfully whether his boss is a Christian or not, or whether he is nice or not. Because again, he works for the Lord. If your boss is a fellow Christian, that does not mean you get to slack. This is something for us to consider. I'm trying to intertwine this with an employee's 
and employers, which we'll touch on in a little bit. But um, just talking about the concept of having a Christian boss or having a Christian master and not having that opportunity to slack. Tim and I had an opportunity last year to go to a leadership conference led by former Navy SEALs. And one of the instructors talked about when his good friend took over the unit and there was a time he was running a little late. Since he was running as late, he gave his friend a courtesy call to let him know that he was going to be late. When he told his friend, the boss, that he was going to be late, his friend responded with, no, you're not. Needless to say, he was late. And when he got there, his friend called him into the office. In the office, he was essentially told that just because they were friends, that did not mean that he had an opportunity to now slack. In fact, since they were friends, he expected more out of him. He expected him to be on time and to work hard. Why? Because a friend is someone you should be able to count on. In closing the conversation, he told him that something like this wouldn't happen again and then disciplined him by revoking his weekend pass and giving him extra duty. The individual who told that story advised the audience that after the talk, he realized that his friend was right and he shouldn't have jeopardized that friendship by trying to take advantage of his friend and the situation. And for the Christian, when we have a Christian boss, um, that's something that we need to realize. That does not give us an opportunity to now sit back and not work hard because we have a Christian boss. We're to put in full effort, and that's what Paul's getting into here. When you have a Christian boss or even a non-Christian boss or a Christian master or a non-Christian master, you are still to work as unto the Lord and put in full effort. And we're going to get a little, little more into that as we continue as to the why we are to do that. If your boss isn't a Christian, the purpose of being faithful and working hard is to represent the gospel well. If you have purported to being a Christian, your boss will be watching to see how you work. And I know I just finished reading about not rendering your service unto men and being a people pleaser, but when a Christian slacks at work in the presence of unbelievers, it does much damage to the cause of Christ. Thankfully, someone else's salvation is not predicated on our faithful service, but still, I don't want to be a stumbling block or a hindrance due to my lack of faithful work. Third, remember that since you are in Christ, your situation is temporal, and one day you will receive your inheritance. So although you might feel, why, <clears throat> why be faithful when no one cares, or I'm not going to give credit, or get credit rather for what I do, your true master in heaven sees your faithful service and will reward you. So those are three things that Paul is encouraging slaves to consider. But in light of those considerations, we need to have two other considerations. Although it says obey in everything, this is only in the Lord and does not include sin or matters of conscience. So if the master is calling you to sin, like become a prostitute, they're not called to follow that command. And we unfortunately saw the repercussions for that. But still, again, it's a matter of conscience and what that person would be able to do. <clears throat> In those instances, the believer is to disobey because he would be sinning against the Lord. And that's something that we have to take into account even in our own jobs today. This does not mean also that a slave had to be content with his plight. In 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 23, Paul says the following, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of 
the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So although many would say that Paul never condemns the institution of slavery, at least here we can see that if you are a slave, he is encouraging you to seek freedom. And if you are not a slave, he is encouraging you not to become one. Become a slave of Christ, not of man. For our context, just to get a little closer to home here, this does not mean that I'm saying if you have a job, quit. Because someone might read into that. Or if you do not have a job, do not get one. <clears throat> Some people might find that as, you know, an avenue to be lazy, to be that 30 to 35-year-old son that still lives in their parents' basement. I'm not saying that, just in case you think I am. So in all this, the slave is called to obey and to work heartily. And as I told you, again, that's just something that I have a hard time grasping. But I know Paul had to recognize what was going on in Roman culture because he's not blind to it. For masters, the call is to be fair and just. They're not to threaten their slaves or be harsh with them. They're not to show favoritism to some slaves, potentially Christian slaves. They're to be fair and just. <clears throat> Why? Because although you are an earthly master, you serve a heavenly master who is also your slave's heavenly master. And with him, there is no partiality. Now, again, as I look at the role of a Christian master, and again, coming back to the American context, it's difficult for me to fathom how someone who is a Christian can be a slave owner. Some might say, well, since it was widespread and since many needed the institution to pay off a debt, it was necessary for those who became Christians to keep their slaves. So if we're looking at it from a New Testament concept, some might say that. In the American context, since the institution was so widespread in the South, and since many plantation owners were brutal towards their slaves, some might feel it was a way to protect slaves from going to a harsh master. My only problem with both of those excuses is that if that individual had the means to take care of them, why wouldn't he pay for their freedom in the New Testament context? Or why wouldn't you pay for them to travel to a free state in the American context? So in essence, I'm not buying any of the excuses that we have for American masters having slaves. I can't. Another reason why I can't buy it is, is because in no way, shape, or form can I take Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and say that it's okay for a Christian master to view someone as property. I cannot. I cannot say that you can look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and see that all men are created in the image of God and say, but except for this race here, except for these poor people here, I'm going to view them as property. As quick as we're to say there's no clause in these other texts, as which I told you in the one that we're currently in, Paul puts no clause in there, there's no clause in Genesis 1. Either So therefore, you are to see all individuals as image bearers. Nor can I see, you're going to get me on a tangent. Eric warned me to not be Bobby Seals or Huey P. Newton. If you don't know who they are, I encourage you to, to look them up. 
But we can't go the other route of Genesis either and say this is ordained in the providence of God. And what I mean by that, well, since black people are the descendants of Ham, therefore they should be slaves. And unfortunately, in some of our twisted theology throughout American history, that is the mindset that some people have had. You know, one of the sad things that I see and I follow a lot of these things a lot. Pastor Logan, I saw some of your interchanges with some things as well. We love to use the providence of God to our favor. <laughs> and if you don't know what I'm talking about, we, we love to talk about the providence of God when we look at history. And it supports some of the things that happen in history that don't involve us. So it's very easy for me to look back in history and see some things and say, well, it really didn't involve me, so it's the providence of God. So I, I can look at women, let's say, for example, and say certain things in history happened to women because I'm not a woman, and that was the providence of God, and we're just to deal with it. Not too comforting. Definitely not too comforting. Or I can just look at the Bible and say, hey, because such and such happened in history, that is the providence of God. So what do I mean by we like to be one-sided? <clears throat> we never like to consider the other side of the token, which is our own sinfulness. And here's a problem that I have with many things on the internet. One, we have no problem calling homosexuality a sin. But yet we have a problem going back and looking at slavery and Jim Crow and calling it a sin. That's problematic. That's very problematic. So we can take our culture today and look at our culture today and throw darts at the culture and say, here is where the culture is falling short because in our eyes we are no longer a Christian nation. But we have a problem looking back to the glory days, the 1950s, which I had to remind somebody, oh, by the way, that wouldn't have been too glorious for me. <laughs> Because the very woman that I'm married to, I wouldn't be allowed to be married to, nor would I be able to sit in the very seats that I sit in with you. So when we look back to those days, we have a problem looking back and saying that, yes, what we did and what we committed was sin. Viewing people as property is sin. Viewing people as less than human is sin. Recently, we, we've had a president, and I know we have several Trump supporters in here, so I'm not getting into your politics, because I don't want to do that. But we have to start understanding when certain language is used, like calling certain people groups animals. People aren't looking at hyperbole <laughs> at that point. They're associating history with what is being said. And that's what we have to start thinking about and thinking about the other side when we bring up these things. And this is why this topic was very hard for me. Because a lot of times we don't know our history. And in not knowing our history, we just hear words and don't understand why those words affect the other person. Now, in the world, I expect them to have their arguments 
and their wars. But in here, I expect us to be able to sit down and dialogue and talk about these things. So instead of saying, brother, you need to get over it, should be, brother, let's sit down and let's talk about why this offends you. Brother, I'm not understanding this here. And instead of me putting my 100, what is it, 140 characters now on Twitter? Instead of putting my 140 characters in response to what I think you said, yeah. <laughs> maybe I should ask you what you truly meant by that so I have a better understanding of where you are coming from. But no, unfortunately, and I see this in many Christian circles today, our tendency is to want to win the war instead of win the brother because we're more concerned with our tribe than we are with loving our brother. And that is a problem. That is a big problem. Getting back to the text. I'm sorry I went off on my tangent, but I feel it. Something that had to be said. Um, one of the things that I told Eric before he even started preaching is um, one thing I did not want to do is come up here and offend anybody. This is one of those situations that I feel um, we need to actually sit down and talk because that's the only thing that is going to bring about change in the body of Christ. But we also, wanna, we also have to want to have that conversation and look at things that might expose some things that maybe don't bring our favorite author or a theologian or former pastor or group of people like the Puritans into the best of light. But the Bible is full of situations like that. Why? Because God didn't want you worshiping Abraham or Moses or David or anybody else that we would consider our biblical heroes. He wants you worshiping him. So although these, or some of these men have penned great things, does not want you worshiping John Calvin, as much as we say we are Calvinists. Does not want you worshiping Jonathan Edwards or any other great theologian from the past that we typically like to bring up so we can show either how smart we are or how theologically correct we are. So things to consider. So getting back to the text, just as we uh, saw in all other relationships, and this is key. Slaves and masters have a responsibility toward one another. But how do we apply our current situations as either employee, employer, or somewhere in the middle for you middle management folks? How do we apply our current situation to this? So I have some things for us to consider. Whether employee or employer, remember who you serve. You must remember who you serve. In a, the text I think it's explicitly stated for both, whether you're a slave or a master, to remember who you serve. Slaves, you're to work as unto the Lord. Masters, you're to be just and fair because you need to remember you have a master. So although you are an earthly master, you have a master. You need to remember that. So some of you might hate your job. In fact, you might hate your boss. You might think your boss is harsh and overbearing. But because you ultimately serve the Lord, you are to obey and serve heartily. Bosses, you might think some of your employees are lazy or you don't like them. You might have wanted to or actually have tried to get them fired, but either a certain law or the union have impeded these efforts for you getting them fired. It's the individual who does the bare minimum so he does enough to keep his job but not enough to keep up with others that uh, is annoying you. 
You still need to be fair and just to that employee and remember that you also serve the Lord. Second thing to think about, I'm going to step on some toes right now. Don't be that guy. Some of you are asking, well, what guy are you talking about? The one who feels that every opportunity they get at work to preach the gospel, they preach the gospel. You're going to say, well, Eric is always talking about preach the gospel and that's our job. I agree wholeheartedly, but you might be that nine to five character that from nine to one, you feel the need to preach the gospel. And then of course, one to two, you go on lunch break and then don't feel the need to preach the gospel. And then from two to five, come back and then feel the need to preach the gospel again, but don't have time after five o'clock to preach the gospel to your fellow employees. Um, Newsflash, guess what those people think you're doing? They don't think you're trying to win their salvation for them. They think you're a slacker and trying to get out of work. And people have told me that because they're typically surprised when I'm not sitting there all day doing that. So please stop. Your lack of work is the only thing being heard, not the gospel. Don't be the other guy, though, either. So you know who the other guy is. That's the guy who works faithfully and heartily as for the Lord, but then complains that nobody else is doing it. Don't be that guy either. You're working for the Lord. Remember that you're not working for man. So therefore, you can't complain when your fellow employees are not holding up to your standard. This is something that is expected of the Christian, so please do not put these expectations on the non-Christian. Um, it always cracks me up when I hear Christians expect non-Christians to do Christian things, yet complain because they don't. Last time I checked, you were the one who was renewed in Christ, not them. As individuals who do not have the gospel, what do you expect? That they'd be transformed by your work ethic? Is that the mentality that we have? They should see me work and want to do the same. <laughs> it's not how it works. If you're the only Christian in the workplace, don't get mad and complain that you are the only one working. And oh, by the way, and I tell my employees this all the time, if you're the individual that can sit there and tell me what everybody else is doing, I can only think one thing. So although you might tell me you're working hard, I can only think one thing you're not working either because you're too busy sitting there telling me what everybody else is doing. Third, and this one's an important one to me, people are not property or an ends to a means. And this still applies to us. Employee, you can't say I hate my boss and I hate this place, which I hear all the time at my spot, and I'm just here to collect a paycheck. It's the only reason why I'm here. I can care less what goes on here. I'm just here to collect a paycheck. Wrong attitude. Bosses, your mindset can't be that, hey, you just work here to make me money. That's your only purpose in life. No, both employee and employer need to effectually fulfill their roles so that everyone involved may flourish. Four, another important one, the Lord cares about our relationships. It's the beauty of what we've covered in Colossians 
through 4.1. It's very evident throughout our study in the last month. And one of the things I told Mike West, which I don't see him here today, last week is, and I might get in trouble for this, but I think you'll agree with me. I think a lot of times our view of the gospel becomes myopic. And what I mean by that is it's just me and Jesus. And it's just all about my individual salvation. And one of the things we brought up, and it's actually the title of a book I was reading, Christ's redemptive work reaches all the way to as far as the curse is found. So it not only deals with my individual salvation, but it deals with my relationships towards one another, and it deals with my work as, again, I'm an active participant in the dominion mandate. That's the beauty of the gospel. Lastly, and most importantly, please don't think doing any of these things saves you. You know, we, we've been talking about what husbands are called to do and what wives are called to do and what children are called to do. We are not purporting performance-based Christianity here because that is always a danger. The danger is I do these things, so I'm good. I know many non-Christians, though, who do these things better than I do. They're better husbands, they're better fathers, they're better employees. They do these things a lot better than I do. But unfortunately, they do not know Jesus. So their performance at work or in the home does not mean that God is going to look on them favorably and say, hey, since you did this at work and in the home, come unto me. They have forgotten the most important relationship, and that's how we started this series, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's the relationship that we need to be seeking first. If my relationship with my wife is going to be right, it's because of Jesus. I like what Eric said before, you know, anything that even happens in my home, if it stinks, yes, it's me. Husbands, congratulations, that's what comes with being the head. Anything good, that's all Jesus. If my kids end up becoming Christians, which you guys heard my story before, Tara and I were very performance-oriented and thought homeschooling and everything else was going to be the key to doing that. But if my kids come to Jesus, it's not because of me. It is because of him. Yes, I have an active role in that. Yes, I'm to preach the gospel to them. But it's God who is working in them and through them, which is going to bring them to repentance. When it comes to my coworkers, yes, I'm called to work hard, but it's not my hard work that is going to bring them to Jesus. It's not how good of a boss I am. And yes, my employees do think I'm a good boss. I admit I am. <laughs> At the end of the day, though, it's going to be Christ working in them and through them that brings them to him, not me. So one of the things that I encourage you, if you do not know Jesus, please, you have many individuals that you can talk to in here that can tell you who Jesus is and why you need a savior. 
I encourage you to do so today. It's raining, so you have no barbecue to go to. So there's no need to rush on out of here and not hear the message of salvation. I encourage you to do that today. For those who are Christians, this is our calling. Again, we, we have this mentality of exalting our worship to God, which I totally agree with, but yet minimizing our relationships towards people. And I think James kind of covers that, right? And Eric covered that with the youth group extensively. I, I can't say I love God and my relationships stink. So I encourage you, husbands, love your wives. Parents, bring your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And as we work, as you go back to work, hopefully on Tuesday, hopefully y'all are off tomorrow. I know I am. Remember to obey and to work heartily for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this series. Um, Lord, so much to contemplate. And as we look at each one of these relationships, we see that uh, there's issues and controversy with each one. Yet the calling is still the same. Uh, we are called to serve you. So may we serve you faithfully. And may your name be glorified as we perform our roles either as husbands, wives, children, or workers. And Lord, also as we do that, give us an opportunity to not only speak the gospel, but to exhibit it to a world that needs you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.